0: Well, good morning, gentlemen. So glad that you're here today. Happy Cinco de Mayo. Well, again, so glad to see you here this morning. Uh, Can you believe it that there's only three more sessions left? Holy cow, this thing has gone by fast. And, uh, you know, I know that you don't want it to end, neither do I, especially if Shannon keeps on pumping out these cheese grits that y'all are... Yeah, you heard me. Yeah. This is the first manly meal I've had in a while. I've been on... The Whole30 Diet with my wife. If you've never heard of that, thank the good Lord. Um, Good to be here with you. We've gone through 15 chapters so far. And these 15 chapters have just been filled, haven't they, with just amazing, powerful, life-changing, life-altering truths and implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've been blessed by them. I know that you have been blessed by it. Well, the truth is, after 15 chapters, it's hard to remember... to zero in on the purpose of this whole thing, and certainly how all those 15 chapters uh, fit together. So before we dive in, just to give you a little cheat sheet of Romans, or maybe a way to explain Romans to those who have never read it before, uh, there's about five different sections of Romans, right? The first section, which is essentially chapter 1, it stops in verse 17, is the message of the gospel of grace. You know, the gospel is the power of God to save, you know, to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. It's the message of the gospel of grace, and that... Second section picks up in verse 18, takes you through about chapter 4, and that is coming under grace. What does it look like to be apart from the grace of God, then under the grace of God? And you see that in those, uh, you know, ch- about the end of chapter 1 to chapter 4. Then chapter 5 through chapter 8 is living under the gospel of grace. What does it mean to enjoy the implications? What does it look like to be covered in the grace of God and the pinnacle of of that section is, of course, our favorite chapter probably in the Bible, at least it's mine, chapter 8, that glorious triumphant chapter in Romans. Uh, Then the fourth section, chapter 9 through 11, is the overflow of grace to the Jew, to the Gentile, then back to the Jew, and there's lots of lively discussion in those chapters. Then the last section from chapter 12 to chapter 16 is a community shaped by the gospel of grace, and that's where we are this morning. If you missed last week, uh, I encourage you to go back and listen to Sandy's lecture like I did. You will be blessed by it. Sandy said uh, that as the community of God shaped by the gospel of grace, something amazing happens uh, for those of us who are united to Christ Jesus. And this is what happens. The mission of Christ becomes our mission. Can you believe it? Little old you, little old me, we inherit the mission of Jesus Christ. What is that mission? To bring the kingdom of God, the gospel of grace, to bear in this world, every heart, home, neighborhood, and uh, linguistic group in the world. That is our mission. And my goodness, can you imagine that we have been transformed and made into missional agents, agents of reconciliation and redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, friends, if you have a buddy that does not like his job or thinks his life is going nowhere, lead him to Christ because he's going to get the most glorious job and purpose in the history of human thought and there truly is no greater joy and privilege than being involved in what Christ is doing in the world. Now that's what Sandy talked about last week and after that truly galvanizing chapter just really just gets us motivated for ministry we come into chapter 16 verses 1 through 16 and if you've looked ahead I mean, it looks like a phone book, right? Not very, I mean, seriously, outside the prospect, the very likely prospect of you being able to make fun of me this morning, hearing me butcher these people's names, it will happen, laugh away, I've already prayed about it. Um, this, this passage does not seem that exciting, right? It's kind of like in your devotional life, you come up to certain books of the Bible, maybe Leviticus or different passages, like those geneal- gene- genealogy passages, and you, know, you get about two verses into it, and you just think, you know what? I'm glad that's there. I'm going to skip over to the good stuff, right? We've been there before. Let me tell you, this passage is filled with the good stuff. I'm going to read you a a little quote from Church Father Chrysostom. Um, He's called the Golden Mouth Preacher. That's what he was known as. This is what he said. He said, if any be a lover of wisdom, if any person is a lover of wisdom or a friend of spiritual entertainments, let him be told that even the things which seem to be unimportant in Scripture are not placed there at random or with no purpose. He goes on to say, true gold finders are people careful even about little fragments, for it's possible, even from bare names, genealogies, Romans 16, verses 1 through 16, to find great treasure. And friends, let me tell you, this chapter is filled with great treasure. But before we dig that up, Just a little context of why Paul includes this section in Romans. First and foremost, he includes this section because he wants to set Phoebe up for success. We meet Phoebe in verses 1 and 2. We'll talk more about her in just a second. But what we have to know about her, Paul is simply trying to set her up for success. For all intents and purposes, Phoebe was his trusted assistant. And she was given the job to carry this letter which Paul has written from Corinth to bring it to the city of Rome, to Roman Christians, so they would know what Paul was talking about, know the gospel, and know his purposes of continuing his mission. Her job was also to make the road ready for him, to make things ready for him because, you know, he was supposed to be on her coattails. He was going to be there shortly. Another thing that we have to know about Phoebe is the people in Rome had absolutely no idea who she was, which could have made things awkward because essentially she's carrying a support letter, right? me ask you a question. Have you ever received a sport letter from someone that you have no idea who they are? How does that usually go for the person raising support? Not very well, right? Furthermore, have you ever received an email? I got one yesterday that starts out like this. Dearly beloved, I am an evangelist prince from Nairobi and I need 25 King James Version Bibles. Could you please submit 200 million USD? (laughs) Never understood why the King James Version is so expensive in Nairobi. But we get those emails all the time. Why do we get those emails all the time? Because there's people out there that buy that. Hook, line, and sinker. Scam artists. Paul is sending this letter, this little section, commending Phoebe. Because he wants the people in Rome to know, listen, this woman is legit. I endorse her. I trust her. She is my servant. Help her so she can help me. So this is one of the main reasons that he includes this. Right there in verse 1 and 2 to set Phoebe up for success. Secondly, he sends this section both to unite and mobilize the Roman church. We'll talk about more of this in just a second. But what we have to understand right now is that Paul was not in this thing by himself, okay? He was not the Lone Ranger with Tonto and Silver by his side. He had an entire army of Christians behind him helping him bring about the gospel of grace and the kingdom of God to bear in the world. Now he's about to start his second, or rather a, just a new... Uh, you know, initiative in his ministry, and he's recruiting the Roman church to help him. This is an all-hands-on-deck operation. It's not just Paul. He needed the Roman church. Thirdly, and most importantly for our purposes, and this is kind of implicitly implied here, Paul is showing them how right theology should lead to right living. This is what scholars call orthodoxy, orthopraxy. Right thinking, right theology should and does lead to right living. Think about it. We just got 15 chapters of Paul explaining the essence and the beauty of the gospel and what that means for the people of God. Then in chapter 16, we get this really weird snapshot of what the early church looked like and how it functioned together. And Paul starts commanding them to act in a certain way, to treat each other a certain way. Really, chapter 16, it's, it's, it's glorious because what it is, it's a snapshot of theology and practice way back when. Have you ever heard that, you know, some, that sentiment, you know, like, you know what, Barton, you can study theology, book nerd, you know, you do that, I'm just going to love people. Have you ever heard that before? Listen, that's a false dichotomy. Because what Paul is saying here, chapter, 15 chapters of theology, then a, the very end chapter of a practical theology, he's, he's saying that we have to have a right understanding of the gospel and what that means. And it's only then that we're able to live and love each other in the way in which we're called. Right thinking leads to right living. Right theology, right loving. And that's why I love this chapter, because it gives us a beautiful snapshot of what that looks like. And so my hope this morning for us is that as we observe this snapshot of the early church, we would be compelled, rebuked, convicted, encouraged, whatever it might be, to be a community of disciples that's shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Especially in the way that we live together as brothers and sisters in the one body of Jesus. Okay, so go ahead and flip open your Bibles to chapter 16, verses 1 through 16. Hold your laughs until the very end. Here we go. The word of God. I commend to you your sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. And help her in whatever she may need from you, for she is, has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampelatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow uh, worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsmen, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet my beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who's been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncretus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and their brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Neres, and his sister, and Olympus. And all the saints who are with him, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Thank you, gentlemen. (laughs) You're such an encouraging group. Let's, Let's pray together real quick. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time where we can come together as men in the city of Memphis who love you, who have been saved by you, and though we might be part of different churches or in the same family of God. And Father, I pray that you would speak to us. For as Paul says, all of Scripture is breathed out by you and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And Father, we pray that this passage, which is probably skipped over by most and even us, that you would speak to us from it, that you would open up your truth to us, that you'd illuminate the text by your Spirit, and that, Father, we wouldn't just be informed but transformed. And we need this, and we pray for it in the name of Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so there's four observations here that we can make. There's plenty more, but we only have time for four. Four observations of gold in this early church that will benefit us as the church today in the 21st century. The Church of Memphis, four things that we can observe and learn from and be challenged by in this early church. Number one, the early church was a diverse community. It was an extremely diverse community. He mentions 26 people and a couple of different groups. And if you spent any time at all looking at these names, the first thing that's gonna jump off the page is how extremely diverse this community was, this group of Christians. This past weekend I had the privilege of leading a uh, young adult retreat at Country Place. A lot of you who went are here. Our guest speaker is my friend named Tim Johnson. If you don't know Tim Johnson, he's a leader of a church planning initiative here in Memphis and he partners with several different churches. And one of his statements was, you know what, Barton, you know what God wants from his church? If God wanted to describe his church as a pizza, he would want a supreme pizza. And I said, Tim, I'm not sure that's in the Bible, man. What is that, Hezekiah? I've never heard Jesus wants a pizza from his church. He goes, no, 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 I'm telling you, Barton, God wants a supreme pizza in his church. He wants all the ingredients. He wants tomatoes. He wants chopped onions. He wants anchovies, he wants pineapple, he wants pepperoni, he wants sausage, he wants peppers, he wants all the fixings on his pizza. He wants people from every tribe, tongue, and nation in his church and friends. The Roman church was a supreme pizza. There are about five discernible or four discernible categories in which that early church was diverse. First, it was diverse socioeconomically. If you look at verses 8, 9, 14, and 15, Paul addresses Ampulitis urbanus philologus and julia then hermes church tradition tells us and manuscripts that we know from that time period that those names were the most common slave names of the era these were slaves this vast support or or portion of the people that paul mentioned were slaves what do we know about slaves slaves don't have any money what's another thing we know about slaves they don't have any money they were at the bottom end of the spectrum in terms of the worldly point of view in terms of wealth they were They had nothing to their names. They were slaves, these people. But on the opposite end of the spectrum, in verses 1 and 2, 3 and 5, and if you skip all the way down to 23, which isn't in our passage today, we get Phoebe, Prisca and Aquila, and Erastus. Now, who were those people? Those were rich people. Phoebe, among the many things that Paul says about Phoebe, he calls her a patron. What is a patron in this context? A patron is someone who has money coming out of their eyeballs. But not only that, they're blessing the church and the mission of Christ with it. Not just out of their excess, but where it hurts. They're opening up their bank account to Christ Jesus. What is mine is yours. That is a patron. She was a helper of many people. She was a very rich woman. And we furthermore know that she was a rich woman because Paul does not mention a male traveling with her. She's coming from Corinth to Rome. That's a very long way during that time period. Women did not travel alone. That means that she probably hired servants or had slaves herself which means that was not a cheap trip. She was a very rich woman. Then you have Prisca and Aquila. Now, what we know about Prisca and Aquila is that they were tent makers. We're gonna talk about them more in a second, but they traveled all over the place. Okay, we're also told they had a home big enough to have a house church. House churches back in that time were about 40 to 80 different people. Now, now, most of us can squeeze 40 people into our house. It might be crammed, but most of us could probably do that. Back then, that was not common. She had a house. They had a house big enough to house that many people. They had money. Then you have Erastus. What do we know about Erastus? He was the city treasurer in Corinth, which isn't just this normal 8 to 5 job. He was a government official, a very important person in society. You know that this man had money. What does this tell us? One, it tells us the gospel goes to every single person in the city. It goes to the poor folks, it goes to the rich people, and every single person in between. Now we see in Scripture that the gospel does flourish with the lowly, disenfranchised, and oppressed. Why? Because they have fewer idols in this world to place their hope in. We're told by Jesus that rich people have a harder time coming to Christ because they have things in this world they place their hope in. But still the gospel went to rich people. I mean, 200 years after this, the emperor of Rome himself would come to Christ, Constantine. The gospel went all across the city. And our mission as men, disciples, and soldiers in the army of God is to take the gospel everywhere in every neighborhood. Secondly, this tells us, too, that this church somehow, someway, found a a, a way to make their church comfortable for both rich people and poor people, which isn't always the case in this day and age, but this church somehow found a way to make life comfortable for both. They lived together, they loved together, they served together, they were in the thick of it together. But first and foremost, we see this church was diverse socioeconomically. Secondly, this church was diverse ethnically. Of the 26 names that Paul mentions, some of them were Gentile, but many of them were Jewish. Verse 5, Eponetus, we're told that he was the first convert. Right Now that's important because what is Paul's missionary strategy when he goes to a new city? He first goes to the synagogue. right? Then he goes out to the Gentiles. So if this man was his first convert, it's reason to believe that he was probably a Jewish man. And also, he was called the first fruit. If you look in the Greek, it's the first fruit convert, which meant there was many more after him that came to Christ. But still, he was Jewish. Verse 7, Andronicus and Junia, Paul calls them fellow kinsmen. That doesn't mean that they were related, but it means that they were fellow Jews. Even if they were related, they would still be Jewish. Mary, Jewish. Handful of other people that scholars say we have reason to believe they're Jewish. Now, why is this important? You'll know that Rome was the epicenter to the Roman Empire, which meant that it was primarily a Gentile city. Now, the Roman church, as all churches back then, started out being predominantly a Jewish congregation. But in 49 AD, Emperor Claudius issued an edict which expelled the Jews, including the Jewish Christians from Rome. So what went from being a predominantly Gentile city went to being a totally Gentile city. And what was originally primarily a Jewish church became a Gentile church. Years went by. Then all of a sudden this edict came dropped and the jewish christians were able to come back home well of course they wanted to come back home that's where they were born that was their city they wanted to go back to their home church but guess what the church they knew is now primarily gentile so here you have two completely different christian cultures thrown into the mix with one another and listen you talk about problems sandy talked about this the gentiles they had the strong consciences all right they didn't worry about all the customs that the jews did but the jews they still upheld those so they had the weaker consciences sandy said These two people were thrown into the mix with one another. Now, what does that tell us? This church was not mono-ethnic, but rather it was multi-ethnic. It doesn't mean that they didn't have problems. Of course they had problems. Most of the books of the New Testament tell us about the problems between the Gentile and Jewish Christians. But still, this church was diverse ethnically. Thirdly, it was diverse because people had varying backgrounds. I love this part. It's kind of the history Look at uh, verse 11 and verse 13. In verse 11, you have the household of Narcissus. In verse 13, you have Rufus and his mama. What do we know about Narcissus? Okay, Narcissus, Christian tradition tells us, was a wealthy freedman, and he was good buddies with Emperor Claudius. Remember, Claudius is the guy who expelled the Jews from Rome, right? He was buddies with this man. Unfortunately, after Nero became emperor, we we're told that somehow, in some way, emperor Nero's mother convinced Narcissus to kill himself. We don't know how that happened, but that's what tradition tells us. Now, scholars looking at Narcissus, taking two things into account. One, that Paul does not ask the church to greet Narcissus himself, but only those that are in Narcissus' family. And secondly, the fact that he ran around with some pretty bad dudes, we can confirm two things or deduce two things. One, Narcissus wasn't a Christian. And two, those who were Christians in their household, his household, did not have an easy time with it. Probably had a very hard upbringing, those Christians. It was probably very difficult for them to develop a Christian heritage or a discipling atmosphere under that scrutiny. All right, so that's, that's one background. Then you have Rufus. Who's Rufus? If you go back to Mark chapter 15, verse 21, we were told that Rufus is the son of Simon, the secret disciple who helped Jesus carry the cross when he stumbled. Then, furthermore, we have his mother, who is actually a mother to Paul someone who loved Paul and invested in Paul, talking about, my goodness, a Christian heritage. Can you imagine your dad being the man who helped Jesus physically carry the cross on the way to his crucifixion? Can you imagine having a mother that Paul himself said was so good to him that he counted her as a mother himself? I mean, what... Christian families like that. I mean, unbelievable how amazing it must have been to be raised in the Christian tradition with Rufus. But here's my point. There's people from all over the city, from different sides of the track, from different experiences that were in this church. They didn't just hang out with like-minded people. Private school kids didn't just hang out with private school kids. Ole Miss fans didn't just hang out with Ole Miss fans. People who grew up in a wonderful Christian family didn't just hang out with people who grew up in a wonderful Christian family. They were in there together. And remember, this wasn't a giant church where you can easily isolate yourself with like-minded people. These were house churches. They were forced in there together, and they were worshiping God together, doing life together. People from all over the map. Fourthly, and most importantly, this church was diverse by gender. Of the 26 names that Paul mentions, nine of them were women. Now these nine women, Paul doesn't just mention, but he just glorifies them. He commends them, he just pours out the accolades. Four of the nine women, we are told, worked hard in the Lord. They didn't just labor in the Lord, they worked hard in the Lord. And if you look at the Greek, that means they poured out their soul for the sake of the gospel. Okay, then you have Tryphena and Tryphosa. You know what their names mean in the Greek? Dainty and delicate. Often people were named about kind of how they were. So we can kind of assume that Tryphena and Tryphosa, they were like the debutante Southern Belle women, just beautiful women, probably well-to-do, but still they poured their souls out for the sake of the gospel. Then you have in verse one and two, Phoebe. (laughs) My goodness, what does Paul say about her? She's my sister in Christ. She's a helper of many. She's a patron and he calls her a servant. That word in the Greek says deacon. Now, scholars differ about what that means. Is Paul saying that she held the office of deacon, or is it just this generic term in which described anybody who served the Lord in this way? Well, given the context, I think it's the latter. But what we can deduce is that women, especially Phoebe, had a major role to play in gospel ministry. Now, we say, Barton, that does not sound like a showstopper. Well, thank good Lord it's not. But back then it was. Why? Because the Roman Empire is a completely male-dominated society. Completely chauvinistic. Women were considered second-class citizens. If they were identified as all, at all, it would have been according to who their husband was or what house they were a part of. But not here. Paul says, listen, these women have a role to play in the church. They're laboring their guts out for the glory of Christ. The gospel, this is the point, the gospel empowers the disenfranchised. The gospel gives dignity to the disenfranchised as being people created in the image of God. The gospel empowers the disenfranchised by saying, in Christ you are my brother and sister, mother and family and the one family of God. The gospel of Jesus transforms people. It trains them and it invokes them empowers them for ministry in whatever way that God has designed for them. And we see that here. Friends, the point is this church was extremely diverse. That would have been shocking to the pagan world back then. Unbelievably shocking. But here's this church, these house church, probably about 80 to 100 people that have slaves, rich people, um, Jews, Gentiles, people from varying different backgrounds, men and women, all there. Seriously, Tim Johnson was right. This was a supreme pizza, this church. Now, we're going to see why that's important in just a second. But the second overall observation, the early church was unified in their diversity. Now, let's be real real quick. Diversity, unity and diversity, is not the easiest nut to crack. It's not the easiest thing in the world. Anybody involved in trying to pursue diversity just in their personal life, their house church, small group, or just greater church, it's a difficult task to pursue unity and diversity. And there's several reasons for that. One, it takes a long time to get to know people that aren't like you. You know, Tim Johnson, and this is the last piece of illustration, I promise. Tim Johnson said, you know what? The, the, uh, we all love supreme pizza, but some days, at the end of the day, it's just easier to make a pepperoni. You know, I don't want to get home and have to chop the onions and put on the mushrooms and drain the, you know, the, the pineapple can and put the pineapples on. It just takes a long time, and so is true unity and diversity. It takes a long time to get to know each other, especially people that are from different backgrounds. It just takes a long time. Secondly, it can be uncomfortable and also exhausting. It's uncomfortable to be around people that don't really know you or have the same traditions as you. And it can also be exhausting. You know, one of my favorite things I get to do in ministry is take a mission trip to Cambodia. I do that about every other summer. I love it. I love my friends and my brothers and sisters in Cambodia. But by that second week, it's exhausting because you're just in the middle of a group and a culture that's nothing like you. Which is a good point, because usually minorities in the majority are the ones who get exhausted more quickly. And those of us that are in the majority, whatever that majority is, whether ethnic, social, whatever it might be, we have to keep that in mind. That people in minorities, or whatever that minority group is, often gets exhausted because they're not around people that are like them. So we have to think about that. But those are just practical, everyday human reasons that unity diversity is difficult. The main reason it's difficult is because it directly conflicts with our sinful hearts, no matter who you are or where you are. The original sin in, in the Garden of Eden was Adam's attempt to displace God to set himself up as the standard, right? And when we set ourselves up as the standard, all the different isms come in. meism, elitism, sexism, racism, all the different isms come in when we set ourselves up the standard and try to displace God. That's what Paul rebuked Peter for in Galatians 2 that Peter was showing favoritism to those who were like him. And Paul says, listen, that's not the way it's supposed to be, Peter. You should know this. Unity in diversity is very difficult. So the question we have to ask, two questions. One, why in the world did the early church pursue it knowing that it was gonna be difficult? And two, how in the world did they even desire it or maintain it? One, they pursued it because it was God's design. It is God's design. We're gonna see this in the Bible, it's gonna be a very poor attempt to summarize it, but in the Old Testament we see God's covenant with Abraham. What does God promise Abraham in his covenant? He says, You will be you and your posterity will be a blessing to the nations. Not just to Jews, but to everybody. Not just rich people like you, Abraham, but everybody. You will be a blessing to the nations. Now, as we get further down the Old Testament, we see his posterity becomes Israel. They certainly had their highlights, but we know that they failed miserably. So we come to the New Testament. Here's Jesus who becomes the fulfillment, the embodiment of true Israel, who through his death, and resurrection and ascension, he brings about a fulfillment to the promises made to Abraham. Then radically we're told at the end of Matthew that God incorporates his people into that mission of bringing the blessings to the nations in the Great Commission. What does Jesus say in 28, 18 through 20? He says, go and make disciples of all nations. Not just people like you or think like you or went to the same school as you, but make disciples of all nations. Then finally, at the very end of the Bible, we get Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, when John gets that beautiful picture of what the church will be in the day to come. And what does he say? He says, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, peoples, and languages, standing as one before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in right robes, crying out the loud voice Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. It's God's design. That doesn't mean they were perfect at it, that didn't mean they didn't have problems, but they pursued it not because it was politically correct or it was the end thing to do, but because it was God's design from beginning to end. That's why they pursued it. Now how in the world do they maintain it? They maintained it because they had a shared commonality of being in Christ Jesus. Look at verses two, three, five, seven through 14. Look how saturated this passage is with Jesus is unbelievably saturated. He says, welcome her in the Lord, verse two. Verse three, my fellow workers in Christ. Verse seven, they were in Christ before me. Verse eight, my beloved in the Lord. Verse nine, my fellow worker in Christ. Verse 10, Apelles is approved in Christ. 11, greet those in the Lord. On and on and on and on. Jesus is all over the page. What does that tell us? Unity and diversity does not come from skin color, where you went to school, where you grew up in Memphis, uh, what your favorite sports team is, the Grizzlies. It, does not, it is not created by any of those things because if it is, that means that you automatically pit yourself against people who aren't like you. It is based as being those in Christ. That is our commonality, being found in Jesus. What does Paul say in Galatians 3? He says, there is neither Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What unites us as brothers, no matter how different you are, is being found in Christ Jesus. My bro Bonhoeffer, this is what he said, Christianity means community through Jesus and in Jesus. No Christian community is more or less than this because in Jesus Christ, we've been chosen from eternity, accepted in time and united for eternity being in Christ unites you to people who aren't like you, because we have the same salvation and the same eternal destiny. One of my favorite shows, in the, <laughs> one of my favorite shows in the world, is A Band of Brothers. Um, I love it. Uh, it's just one of the few dude things that I get to do with my wife. She likes it, and it's just a great war flick. My favorite part, though, is the interviews before the episodes, or the uh, interviews and the reunions uh, at the very end on special features. They they interview and they showed the reunions of the actual soldiers that experienced all that warfare, right? And it's really amazing. I mean, they're really tough guys and they're just talking. Then they start talking about their fellow soldiers and they see their fellow soldiers and they just melt. I mean, these people are like Clint Eastwood, John Wayne. I mean, they're tough guys. I mean, they're all wrinkly. They're these heavy, just cigar smokers and all that stuff. Then they start talking about their friends and they just start weeping like little girls, And they just melt. These people are from New York, from Texas. They're united. Why? Because when they're over in Europe fighting the Germans, they lived in the reality that they're not making it out of there. There's one episode where this captain comes up to this soldier and the soldier is just hiding out in his foxhole. He's too afraid to stick his head out and start firing. And he's confessing this to his captain. His captain said, do you know why you can't perform as a soldier? Because you haven't accepted the reality that you're already dead. They lived in a reality where they were dead men. But then the war ends. Then they experience the reality that they made it. They have life. And when you go from sitting in death into life, it unites you to people who aren't like you. Cancer survivors experience the same thing. Cancer survivors, no matter how different they are, if they've survived cancer, they know what that person feels like of experiencing, you know, I'm probably going to die, but then one day I'm alive it unites you to people that are like that. And that's what happens at the cross because at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. You're able to look at your brother no matter how different they are than you, whether if it's gender, ethnicity, social class, whatever it might be, and you're able to look at them and say, I know what it feels like to be someone who is dead and trespasses, but now alive in Christ. Dick Cain, one of my, I love this man. He's a mentor to me. Um, when he, uh, uh, counsels, premarital counsels, or pe- people that are engaged. The first thing that he says to that couple is that to the degree in which you experience the love, the acceptance, and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ is going to be how you love, accept, and forgive each other in marriage. And the same is true for the church. To the degree in which we sit and rest in the gospel and experience the love, the acceptance, and the grace of Jesus, that's exactly what we're going to extend to other people. Now, I want to confess to you, I'm not good at this. Like everybody in the world, I have my blind spots. I fail in pursuing this type of stuff all the time with people who are not like me. I'm so thankful to God. He's blessed me, apart from my own damning, with friends that help me with my blind spots. But there are some questions that I've grown to ask myself that have really helped me, and they might help you too. One, ask yourself these penetrating questions. Are there any relationships you have that cannot be explained outside of the gospel of Jesus? Or are all of your relationships based around whatever your affinity group is? Do you have any friendships that are simply there because gospel, Jesus? Secondly, do you have acquaintances with people who you're buds with that aren't like you, but you're just acquaintances, you haven't really made that next step yet because you don't have much to talk about? Could that be the case because you simply have not brought that relationship to the foot of the cross Listen, the common language for every single one of us in the church, it doesn't matter how different you are, is the gospel of Jesus. Ask them what their faith story is. Tell them your faith story. Study scripture together. That is the common language for all Christians across the world, the gospel of Christ. Just a couple of penetrating questions to ask. But we pursue this not because, you know, it's, you know, something that's a fad in culture, but rather because it's God's design. It doesn't mean we're going to be great at it or perfect at it. But we're able to do it, and we're able to maintain it because of our commonality in Christ Jesus. Now, thirdly, moving on very quickly, the third observation we see in the early church is that it was a missional community. Notice that most of the Christians that Paul mentions, he attributes some, some type of work, some ministry, some way that they have done for the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse one, Phoebe was a servant, a helper of other Christians. Verse three, Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers, which means they were attached to Paul in some way. Verse six, greet Mary who worked hard for you. That's interesting because Paul had never met Mary before. He had just heard about Mary. It'd be like me calling you know, up Germantown Baptist and saying, hey, head pastor, I want you to greet Dan. I don't know Dan, but I know that he's serving the Lord over there. Be sure that you welcome him and greet him and celebrate him. That's what happened there. Outrageous. Verse seven, Adronicus and Junia are called apostles. Now, don't freak out. That's a little a. That means that they were commissioned, sent missionaries, paid professionals in the church. Verse nine, Urbanus, my fellow worker. Verse ten, Apelles, approved in Christ. That meant that he experienced some trial, some suffering, some persecution for the sake of Jesus. Verse 12, Tryphena and Tryphosa, sisters and Perses, who worked hard in the Lord. Almost every name has something attributed to it as doing something for gospel ministry. Now there's three quick things that we can learn from this. One, outside of Adronicus and Junia, none of them were professional missionaries. they were just normal people. What does that tell us? I'm gonna say this positively because it is positive. God does not reserve the experience of joy for gospel ministry to those who are paid for it. He reserves that joy for all of His children to enter into gospel ministry. It doesn't matter if you're trained in ministry. It doesn't matter if you've been. I mean, in Mark chapter one, in Mark chapter one, uh, Paul did not, or rather, Jesus did not go to his disciples after he said, "Hey, repent and believe." drop your nets and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. He didn't say, but first go to covenant and get a counseling degree. He didn't say, hey, first get hired by a church, then do ministry. He trained them, sure, but he sent them out immediately. And they experienced the joy of ministering the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people in their neighborhoods. All of us have have the possibility of experiencing profound joy in spreading the gospel of Christ. Secondly, we learned that Christian families actually ministered together. Now, I want to take this kind of like a little case study. Look at Prisca and Aquila in verses 3 and 5. As a married man, I've been so convicted over verses 3 and 5. I've been challenged by it. I've been encouraged by it. It's given me a vision of how I might lead my wife, Sarah. I want you to point out a couple of things real quick. First off, Prisca was named before her husband, Okay. Six times in the Bible, these, this couple's mentioned. Three of them, the wife is mentioned first. The other three, the husband's mentioned first. Now, I really like what scholars say about that. What they say Paul is, is trying to do here is say that these folks, husband and wife, were partners in gospel ministry. They did ministry together. Now, Aquila was the head of the household. He was the spiritual leader. But still, he brought his wife alongside him to do ministry together. That's amazing. If you think about it, I'm challenged. Am I equipping and enabling my wife to do ministry with me? That challenges me. Secondly, Aquila and Prisca utilized their marriage for the sake of the gospel. Utilized their home for the sake of the gospel. We're told they brought people into their house. Okay, they brought Gentiles into their Jewish home, people that were not like them, but they used it as a platform to minister. My home is my safe haven. I go there when I'm tired, okay? But these people welcome people in their home to worship the Lord. Thirdly, or secondly, I can't remember which order they're in, they sacrifice their comfortability. If you look at Acts 18, verse 2, we see Prisca and Aquila there. We also see them in 1824. We see them in Paul's letters to Timothy, and we see them here. They traveled all over the place. They were living in Rome. They got expelled from Rome. They went to Corinth, and from Corinth they went to Ephesus, and from Ephesus they went back to Rome. They were tent makers, so we could say they probably did that to make a buck. They were entrepreneurs, and that was probably the case. But not the main reason, because if you follow their traveling, you'll notice they followed Paul, which meant they went where the action was. They weren't concerned about building a white picket fence fixer-upper home. I love that show, by the way. But they weren't concerned about that. They, they sacrificed their comfort to minister. Fourthly, they taught the scriptures. Go to 1824, look at it, we have to move forward. That's a great passage, a very cool passage. But lastly, they risked everything for the gospel of Jesus. These people had to have loved each other and cherished each other to do the things that they did. Otherwise, they would have built resentment and just ripped each other's throats out. They loved each other. But Paul says they sacrificed, they laid their necks on the line for me and all the churches rejoiced over, which meant they did not idolize their marriage. They loved each other. But more important to them was the gospel of Jesus. And friends, I confess to you that many times I idolized my marriage. There's so many things that we can learn about this church. It was missional. Families were missional. They ministered together. Then lastly, Paul celebrates them for their work in the Lord. He didn't say, greet Hermes, who made a killing on a land deal. He didn't say, greet Junia, whose kids were making straight A's. He didn't say, greet Ted, whose father owns Coca-Cola. You might want to know him. He didn't say, hey, greet John. He led 200 people to Christ the other day. He didn't say anything like that. But he says, hey, simply greet these people who are quietly going about their day and joyfully ministering in the name of Jesus. Friends, what do we celebrate people for? When do we celebrate people? Is it just when Hallmark tells us to? Is it just when we can get something? Or is it simply because we have joy in our heart because we see our brothers and our sisters joyfully, quietly ministering in the Lord? The early church was missional. Lastly, the early church loved each other as family. They loved each other as family. Francis Schaeffer said in the 21st century, people from all over the world will never listen to what we have to say if we have right doctrine, right polity, but don't exhibit community. So they won't listen to us. And why would they if we didn't act like church? Why would the non-believing world listen to us if we did not love each other as we are, brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, in the one family of God? And friends, this is how we do that. One, we first view each other as family. Look what Paul said in verses 1, 4, and 13. He called non-relatives sister, brother, and mother. It's like it's a Baptist church or something. Greet Brother John. Greet Brother Paul. I love that, by the way, because it reminds people of who they are in Jesus. They're brothers. They're family. Paul knew that they were his family. and He didn't treat family members, anything other than they really were family. And he called them as such. There's a girl, a young adult woman in our church that has a very heavy-duty, strenuous job. But after she gets home from that job, she goes to an older lady's another older lady single person in our church who's battling cancer and after she gets home from work she gets herself comfortable and she goes down the street and she stays on that woman's couch during the nighttime to make sure if she needs anything in the middle of the night because she's by herself why would another human being do that for another human being because they're family Of course, you'd do that for your mom. Of course, you'd do that for your dad, your brother, and your sister. But what if we took the family of God seriously and treated each other really as family, the only family that really matters in the long run? We're family. So one, we view each other as family, but two, we have action-oriented love towards one another. Agape love, Christian love, divine love. It's not emotional, but rather it's action-oriented. You know, if, if you have a buddy in church that comes up to you and says, Bill... I totaled my car yesterday. I don't know how I'm gonna to get to work this week. This is what we're gonna say. John, let me pray for you. <laughs> but if it's your son, you're gonna say, hey, here's the keys, don't scratch it. Why? Because you show him love. It's not just lip service, it's action oriented. But what if we really view each other as brothers and sisters in the one family? There's practical ways in which we can actually love each other that Paul mentions here. One, we actually know each other's names. No, Paul had a list of 26 people, most of whom he did not know. These people who knew who Paul was, but they had never met him before. But can you imagine when this letter was read aloud and just these old, little old people in the back of the church, they heard their names read aloud, how amazingly loved they might have felt that Paul knows my name. Listen, if you're a part of a church as big as ours, 3,000, you will never know everybody's name. I, and I have the worst memory in the world. But how amazing is it when people don't call you, hey, fella, they say, hey, Chuck, They actually took the time to know you. And if people don't know you, take comfort that the one who only counts knows your name. But how amazing would it be that if we really knew each other, we knew each other's names and we said, hey, Bob, how are you? Know each other's names. Two, greet each other. Fifteen times out of 16 verses, Paul says, greet so-and-so. The famous one, of course, is in verse 16 where he says, greet each other with a holy kiss. Now, before y'all start smooching, that was cultural, okay? Okay. That was a thing that the early church did to communicate and express a genuine love, care, and concern for another human being. So Paul is not saying, hey, kiss your brother right now here at Amen. If you do, you're going to leave here with a black eye, all right? But what it is saying is actually physically demonstrate that you care for another human being. What does that look like? Cultural norms. Well, actually shake your guy's hand. Don't give him a head nod. Shake his hand. If you're young, look at your elder in the eye. That communicates respect. Young people don't do that anymore. Look at him in the eye. Let him know that you care about this person. You want to know about his life. Give him a bro hug, whatever it is. I don't know. But communicate that you actually are joyful to be in this man's presence. Communicate that to him through action. Lastly, or thirdly, not lastly, thirdly, older men seek to mentor younger men. In chapter, in verse 13, he says, Rufus's mom was a mom to me. They were not related. How could he have said that then? Because Rufus's mom treated Paul in such a way that he actually felt like this woman was his mother. She probably cared for him, asked him how he was doing, invited him over for supper when they were together. Probably said, hey, how can I help you in life? What do you not know about? I'm older than you. Let me give you some wisdom. Let me love you. Let me pray for you. Let me do these. Friends, you have no idea how encouraging it is for you to come along, a younger man in your church, and say, hey, I don't know who your dad is. He could have been a great dad or he could have been a terrible dad. But how can I be a spiritual father to you now? How can I give you wisdom? I'm not, intel- you probably know more about the Bible than I do, but how can I just come alongside you and encourage you in the faith? How can I tell you about life? How can I tell you about doing your taxes or making investments? How can I tell you about all sorts of things that they don't teach you at school? How can I just come alongside you and love you as your father? Friends, seek to, ment- if you're young, mentor people younger than you. Lastly, show hospitality. Paul says, receive Phoebe. Basically what that is, is Southern hospitality. He says, hey, bring her into your home, but not to the dining room where all the china is. Bring her home into where the action happens, in the den. Turn on the game, bring out some barbecue and some sweet tea, let her kick her feet up on your couch, let her be a part of your home. Let her experience life with you. That is the greatest, I'm telling you, that is the greatest way that we can build community with one another. Okay, it's not by only meeting people at Starbucks, but getting them into your home. And it's also the best way to show the glory of Christ to the world. Really quick, if you need to go, go, but I'm not going to skip out on this illustration because it just kills me. Rosaria Butterfield, I don't know if you've ever heard of her. She was a woman who was a card-carrying member of the LGBTQ community long ago. She was a professor at Syracuse, I believe, and taught uh, feministic studies, and she hated the church. She hated Christians because her entire life she experienced hatred from that community. She actually said that she only stayed in the LGBT community as long as she did because that was the only group that welcomed her. But then one day, she met her neighbor, a new neighbor. He happens to be an OPC pastor. (laughs) And once she found that out, she immediately put up her guard and nothing really happened. But that OPC man, that pastor, pursued her. He said, hey, I just want you to come over to dinner, meet my family, meet my wife. We would love to have you. Ten Invitations go out with no reciprocation. Finally, she comes over. And to her surprise, there were no conversations like the ones she was expecting. But this man, this woman, just sat down. They prayed over their meal. She said that. They said they did not hide their Christian faith. They loved each other as man and woman. But they didn't press that upon her. All they did was want to get to know her, ask her about her life, her upbringing. What's life like for you? What's your favorite song? What music do you listen to? what What literature do you like? And she just left flabbergasted. Eventually, they became really good friends. They started sharing lawnmowers and gasoline and sugar and milk. And eventually, she knew she was eating over there at least once a month, sometimes even once a week. And before she knew it, all of that animosity she had towards the church just left her because she realized that this man actually loved her. She was welcomed by him. And he trusted her. She trusted him. Then after that, those conversations started happening, the important conversations about Jesus And pretty soon she became a Christian and she repented from her lifestyle. And today she's a writer for the Gospel Coalition who goes across the United States telling of her story in this OPC pastor. Friend Schaefer's right. The world will not listen to the church, even if we have right doctrine and right polity, if we do not act like the church. If we do not love each other as family, why would they? I love chapter 16. There's so much gold here for us to just model, to encourage us to be challenged by. And Paul is absolutely right. All of Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And friends, what do we learn today? One, the church is diverse. We're not going to be perfect at that, but we must pursue it. Two, we're united to each other no matter how different we are because of our shared commonality in Jesus Christ. Thirdly, we're missional. We go about the mission of Jesus Christ. You don't have to go to to school to get educated. You have to be sent out by a church, just minister in your neighborhood. And lastly, my goodness, friends, let's love each other as brothers because that's exactly what we are in the name of Jesus. To the glory be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this group and these men. I thank you for the opportunity of studying your scriptures And Lord, I pray that by the power of Your Spirit, we would know more and more each and every day of the power of the gospel, that it is the power to save every nation, every tribe, every language and race. And Father, we pray that we would be so moved by our experience of salvation that we would extend love and grace and mercy and forgiveness and acceptance to each other, to Your glory, and it's in Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.